are listening to Stories from Palestine podcast, a podcast recorded in Palestine and about Palestine. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands and I am married to a Palestinian. We live in Beit Safafa between Jerusalem and Bethlehem and we run Singer Cafe and Al Chisar Bar in Beit Sahur. Before moving to Palestine in 2013, I worked as a teacher and tour guide in the Netherlands. I have a degree in history and in tour guiding and many years of tour guiding experience. Due to the COVID pandemic, tourism in Palestine came to a complete halt and that's why I started Stories from Palestine podcast in August 2020. This is the second year of the podcast with every week on Monday a new episode about the history and heritage of Palestine as well as the reality of life today. I hope you will enjoy today's episode. Dear listeners, last days were very intense in Palestine. Generally, every day is pretty intense. And every day there is a lot of Israeli violence from soldiers and settlers towards the Palestinians. But with the targeted killing of Shirin Abu Akleh and the disruption of her funeral, we reached a new low And in the same time, the incredible amount of people that came to Jerusalem for her funeral was an important sign of Palestinian presence in the land, despite all the attempts by the Israeli authorities to remove them from the land and to lock them into dedicated areas. And that's what is happening now. For example, in the South Hebron Hills, in the Masaf Riyata area, where the Israeli military wants to forcibly displace 1,300 Palestinians. I just visited that area with Sami, whom I interviewed for a podcast episode a few weeks ago. And the excuse of the military is that the area looks a lot like South Lebanon and they need to practice there with the army. And the area is already largely declared as a firing zone. And now the Israeli high court also gave permission for the army to literally displace the people. And they've done it before. They have loaded people on trucks, destroyed their homes, and just left the people on the other side of the main road with nothing. We've also seen footage of settlers in Hebron taking over a Palestinian home while the family was out. I heard they went to Shireen's funeral in Jerusalem. I couldn't verify it, but it was on the same day as the funeral on Friday, that they stormed the house with tens of people carrying mattresses and bags into the home, the home of a Palestinian family, and they just took it over the whole building. And that is just a few examples of what happened in recent days. Many more Palestinians were arrested, wounded, beaten up, killed. And in this kind of atmosphere, I could not release my planned podcast for today, which was the visit we did to the Arak distillery in Bejala, where I recorded an interview with Nader Muaddi. I will keep it for another week. Instead, I decided to upload an episode that I recorded recently for Pax Palestine podcast. Last year, I produced three episodes for Pax. Pax is the largest peace organization in the Netherlands. And this year, we worked on another three episodes. And I will share all three of them here on Stories from Palestine podcast. And today's episode is an interview with Nadim Nashiv and Muna Ashteya, who are working for Hamle. 
the Arab Center for the Advancement of Social Media and Digital Rights in Palestine. As some of you may have noticed, there is a lot of censorship on social media platforms when it comes to news posted about Palestine. And this is one of the concerns that Hamla addresses. But also, for example, the spyware and other technologies that are being used to get intelligence on Palestinians. And then those apps like Google Maps and PayPal that do not include Palestine and the Palestinians in their services. You can hear more about this in this episode, an interview with Hamle. This was my introduction. You will now hear the full episode I created for Pax Palestine podcast, including their introduction. And their music, by the way, is also composed by Zayd Hillel. are listening to the Pax Palestine podcast, a podcast that features interviews with some of the local Palestinian partners of Pax, a peace organization based in the Netherlands. Pax works together with committed citizens and partners to protect civilians against acts of war, to end armed violence and to build a just peace. In Palestine, Pax supports local partners in building resilient communities promoting human security and equality in the political, cultural and social domain and in fighting the injustices resulting from the protracted occupation. My name is Crystal and I'm your host. I am a Dutch citizen living in Palestine with my Palestinian husband and two children. Besides running a cafe and a bar in Bethlehem, I produce a weekly podcast called Stories from Palestine. Last year, I produced three episodes for Pax with interviews with local Palestinian partner organizations. And now you can listen to new episodes produced in 2022. Nadim Nashif, thank you very much for your time for recording this podcast, especially for Pax Palestine podcast. Before you start talking about Hamle and what is this organization, what does it do? Can you introduce yourself? Who are you? Where are you from? What is your background? Hi, yeah. Thank you for hosting me and happy to be with you in this podcast. My name is Nadim Nasif and uh, I am originally from Taibe, which is a village that is in the center of the country. I moved to my university study at Haifa, just then I'm based in Haifa. I have been active in the Palestinian civic society in the last 25 years or more and different political parties and movements and NGOs. I also initiated uh, several organizations and initiatives along the years, especially around uh, youth development and community organizing. And lastly, I'm in Hamli uh, and focusing around the Palestinian digital rights. 
Maybe we can start with that. What are that digital rights? So basically, they are the extension of our human rights in the physical world to the internet world, to the virtual world. So as we all know, we are living in an age where basically everything is being digitized and COVID-19 and the last two years and more pushed even the ones who did not want to willingly move into the digitization and digital world have to move on. Because these days you cannot manage your education, your economics, your health. Any aspect of our life is more or less digitized in these days, which create lots of dilemmas and lots of issues around data, around privacy, around freedom of expression, around organizing people and movements, and how this environment is being regulated and how people are being treated in this environment. And from there, there was created a global movement of digital rights organizations and defenders who are focusing on our digital rights and struggling and fighting in front of government and companies in a way to make sure that our rights are respected and upheld and protected in the digital sphere. Why is that so important to stress these rights? As we know, these rights are basically being violated because there is a tendency and it's not all of the government, most of the government to control things. And in many cases to control and to abuse in a way that protect the government. So laws in general and regulations supposed to protect the citizen and its data and its privacy. But unfortunately, in the world they are living, there are lots of oppressive regimes who care mainly about their own control over the citizens and make regulations and laws that basically come to protect the government from the citizens and to make sure that the government stays in its place. And it means basically to crush any kind of freedom of expression of the online, any kind of self-organizing. And while doing that, also to use heavily surveillance. And we have been hearing lots probably in the last two years also around surveillance and tracking. Um, so all of this creates a situation where basically in the contrary of what was 10 years or 15 years ago, which is a free internet, today we have an internet that is over-regulated and that is harm- harming the citizens' rights, their digital rights. Yeah, and I can imagine for the Palestinians, you have basically three components. You are facing probably the Israeli authorities, the local Palestinian authorities, and then maybe the social media companies in general that are also influenced by how the world looks at Palestinians. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yes, so we spoke about the world in general and how there are issues, dilemmas and complexities around digital rights and privacy of the people and creating the the data, the big data that's happening and how it's being regulated or not and who can help in that. But if we zoom in to the Palestinian context, obviously it is a much more complicated reality. Because in the Palestinian context, we are speaking about three governments, as you mentioned. So in the government level, I mean, you have the Israeli government and how it deals with Palestinian citizens in 48 areas, the internationally recognized borders of Israel. But also, obviously, there are Palestinians in the West Bank, where basically there is self-ruling by the Palestinian authority in a limited way in the cities mainly. Uh, and there is the Gaza Strip where we have basically Hamas de facto government that is ruling. But the, the big uh, 
picture is that Israel still control the country in, in the total, I mean, in the way of controlling the borders, controlling what we in, what go out, and mainly controlling the telecommunication infrastructure because the internet and the phone and all this physical infrastructure, the Palestinians do not have it independent. It's controlled by Israel. So basically the lines, the fiber cables, come first to Israel and then Israel gives it to the Palestinians. And this is according to the Paris agreements in the 90s after Oslo agreements. The idea was that the Palestinians will go towards the independent Palestinian state and gradually in a parallel process, the telecommunication sector also will be independent from Israel. Obviously neither happened and we are still stuck with the Israeli side in that matter. Which means obviously, um, Two problems. One is around being in a security perspective. Obviously, when they control the infrastructure, they also can surveil better and the issue of the privacy, etc. The other part of it is that they are, in an intentional way, they are preventing materials from Palestinian telecommunication companies and make sure that they are not getting the right technologies where we are living. So, so for example, in Gaza, it's still second generation phones, right? In the West Bank, only lately the 3rd G, while we are speaking now, the world um, is in 5G. I mean, Israelis companies are suggesting for their customers fifth generation telecommunication and mobile telecommunication. And this also creates a reason why uh, there is also economics in behind it, because many Palestinians in the West Bank use Israeli internet instead of Palestinian internet, and the Palestinian economy loses. This is a very problematic situation where there is one side who's kind of stifling this sector from developing and making sure that they are way behind uh, where the world is right now in terms of telecommunication. So this is one aspect of what the Israeli government is doing. The other aspect is the repressive legislations and laws. One example is the recent Facebook bill, which is a law that was introduced to the government legislative committee and was approved by it. So the basic idea of the law that the Israeli government by the general attorney, he can go to the courts and take an order of uh, removal of certain content that by his definition is uh, harmful or against the Israeli law. And he can do this on one side with the judge with a secret evidence. So basically, the other side, let's say, if I have a content and my content, according to the general attorney, is harmful, the Israeli court will order to remove it to the Facebook, and Facebook then have to answer that. And if they don't, they will have a very huge fine, so, so probably they will. And that, uh, gets get us into a situation where the Israeli government basically have control of all social media. It's not only social media, actually. The, the new law says that it's any website. So it can be a news website, it can be uh, whatever website. They don't like the, the content. And they use these kind of vague definitions about incitement, about things that we don't normally use against Palestinians. Even if you are saying that we are against occupation and we need to be free for many of them that we consider as an incitement. But the result is that basically controlling the net. Websites that they do not have access to or direct control, they would issue by this law, they would issue a warning to the Israeli internet service providers to block the website from Israelis. 
So it means that basically, for example, there's a Jewish American activist who keep writing articles and he keep breaking gag orders. Now they can block him from the Israeli public to see it. So basically, total control on the, on the net. Now, adding to that, the third layer is basically the layer where they have a strong cooperation already between the Israeli cyber unit and the social media companies. Basically, they call it now voluntary requests because it's not obligatory, it's not by law. They just send the requests that are on a voluntary and friendly basis. And the companies are cooperating with them, according to the people in the cyber unit, like 90% of the requests being answered. Positively, we have statistic until 2020 that basically in that year they requested more than 20,000 requests of takedowns. That 90% of that was approved. So you can imagine like how big this phenomena. Lastly, the issue that they are using is our issue of surveillance that we know Israel is a developed country in terms of technology, there are many high tech companies. What people normally do not realize is how much the army and the private sector in Israel are integrated in this security manufacturing establishment that is basically creating, you know, because the soldiers are trained in these security units, like uh, Unit 8200. They surveil Palestinians and they develop technologies to surveil Palestinians all the time. And when they are graduates and they finish the army, they go and create these high-tech uh, companies and startups based on the knowledge that they got at the army, based on the tests that they did on the Palestinians, and later on sell these technologies to other oppressive regimes. And by this, they would be creating a very lucrative business based on the, the Palestinians who are a kind of laboratory to test Israeli technologies of, of surveillance. So it's a whole system of oppression that is becoming quite a utopia. Because as Palestinian, I'm, I'm sure you uh, noticed that everywhere you go in the West Bank, you see cameras. So you have uh, cameras with facial recognition systems, you, you are surveilled by your phones, we have testimonies of ex-soldiers who have been saying that every jawal, every mobile phone is being also uh, monitored, the social media is being monitored. We know also that they monitor the plates of the cars, the license plates in, in one system. So everything is monitored, everything is being recorded as a Palestinian all your life. Uh, and I'm not speaking about Pegasus, which also for activists and human rights organizations, they have uh, even much more uh, sophisticated technology. And lastly, the point of the Blue Wolf, I mean, we uh, it was revealed in Washington Post report about how the Israeli army is using uh, Blue Wolf technology, which is a technology that is a combination between basically facial recognition and uh, security classification of the Palestinians. So the soldiers would have a mobile phone with an application. He would take picture. It would photo the Palestinian who would come to the checkpoints. And then the application would tell him what's the level of uh, security of that person. Is he wanted so the soldier can arrest him? Is he needed to be interrogated? Uh, he cannot go away. Or we need his picture, take picture of this person because he's not in the imagery database. So this is a very dystopic uh, world we are living in as Palestinians, where everything is monitored. The, the big brother is not anymore or something from the uh, you know, uh, abstract. It's, it's very real. It's in our daily life and everything that we do. These are the main tactics that the Israeli uh, government is using in this aspect against Palestinians. And what as an organization are you doing? I mean, you are collecting all this information, you have all this knowledge, and then what can you do to... I don't think you can change the situation, or can you do something? 
Obviously, it's a very difficult situation because, I mean, you're dealing with a very strong government that has its resources and from one hand, also strong politically because of the almost unconditional support from the U.S. administration uh, from the side of the EU. The economy here is interacting, selling technologies and developing technologies. Also, the political atmosphere with some of the Arab countries is being developed because I guess they are finding similar language as oppressive regimes and selling these kind of surveillance technologies to each other because Pegasus, we know that was used by the Saudis, by the Emirates, etc. So it's a problem, it's not something easy. But on the other hand, there are good examples of how civic society, global one, not only Palestinian, has been pushing back against the NSO, the company who created Pegasus. Um, they have been blacklisted by the U.S. administration. They are sued in many courts. Yesterday, Salah Hamouri, a Palestinian French uh, lawyer and human rights defender, together with the human rights organization in France, they submitted a lawsuit in French uh, courts. And we know that the company is having very difficult times also because there are attempts also in the EU to ban them and in many other countries. Many of this come on the background that uh, civic society, like citizen organizations like Citizen Lab, like uh, Frontline Defenders, Amnesty International and others were monitoring the work of this company, were issuing reports and were lobbying together. So there are good examples of how obviously this is very difficult, this is very powerful governments, but very powerful companies, I mean, they, they were like uh, making billions of dollars and they have all the resources to, to do whatever they like. But I think with some smart action, even small organizations can sometimes have a win. Can you tell us a few more practical examples of what you do? What campaigns or projects does Hamla do? On the level of research, monitoring and advocacy, from one hand, we do lots of monitoring and research because we need to create a level of knowledge around what's happening and analysis, so people would know. So we do analyze the company's policies also, not only governments. We spoke about the Israeli governments. We obviously also monitor the Palestinian Authority and Hamas de facto government and, and their regulations and legislations. There's the notorious uh, Palestinian cyber crime law, which criminalized the activists and political opponents, so we, we fight against it. We also monitor and research the policies of the companies and create different reports around this. So people, researchers, academics, and others can also understand how this policy is developing. And we created the HARP platform. HARP platform is a platform that basically people can approach us and submit cases of rights violations that happen to them by companies or governments. And we at the Hamley team uh, follow up on those great cases, specifically when it comes to companies, because Hamley is a trusted partner to Meta and to Twitter and uh, TikTok. So basically, we collect all the cases that there are takedowns happening on the social media. We appeal to the social media and we try to argue why this is wrong to take it down. And so from one hand, we help the person who has a difficulty or a problem. In case he or she need other help, like, uh, for example, beyond the technical level, like the legal support, some kind of psychological support. So we have a referral system with other organizations who are our partners. But what mainly also we are aiming from this is by the end of the year to get enough data to analyze the company's policy. So uh, from 21, we 
have more than 1,000 cases we uh, documented. So through understanding these cases, we understand how, for example, Facebook dealt with Palestinians and hundreds of cases, and you can see patterns, you can see trends. This is a very new project and important one and strategic for Hamley. Can you describe maybe some of these trends? I've recently heard from a friend who had an Instagram account called Handmade Palestine, and they were only just selling artisanal products made by Palestinians to Europe and the United States, not political at all. They were taken down. Yes. So one of the phenomena is what they call false positive. False positive meaning that they took down an account for the wrong reasons. And part of the investigation is that basically there are groups, organized Israeli or pro-Israeli groups, who go to social media and they target certain accounts and they start reporting collectively. What we call it online brigading, basically. Obviously, this is a misuse of the reporting system because the reporting system that they think see something that is not appropriate for you as a user, you, you report it. But uh, they see things that they, in most of the cases, it's in Arabic, they don't understand what's in it. But just because it's Palestinian, they report it. And when they report it in hundreds or in thousands of people at once or in a similar time, it makes like red flag for the companies and the companies take down. And then buddies like Hamdi come and say like, wait, wait, you are putting down something that would not do any harm and there's no reason, please take it again. And then they take it. The other problem is that there are also some kind of keywords and artificial intelligence that is being used by the companies. And artificial intelligence is not always intelligent. So in some cases, they, they do miss cases and they misunderstand some nuances in Arabic language. Or they, even if you wrote today like a criticism of, of Hamas, the post probably will be taken down because they automatically they take it down, even if you are anti-Hamas. They have lots of ways to go on and to do things, but the reality basically is that there is over-moderation on Arabic-Palestinian content, and there is under-moderation or non-moderation on Israeli-Hebrew uh, content. And this was very clear and left me uprising, and lots of the media report about it, and that's why there is now a committee, that independent committee that was commissioned by Meta to check their policies of content moderation in Arabic and then in Hebrew. Okay, so you can see that there are sometimes wins on your side, successes, when you notice these things and when you make them public, and then these sort of decisions are reversed to take down accounts. Yeah, to take down accounts, they are done, we we do it. But obviously, I mean, our aim is not like to help only in specific cases. Our aim is to change the big policy because we don't want to tap it. We want to have a free internet, we want to have safe internet for everybody, also for Israelis and also for Palestinians, that is the clear from hate speech, that people are treated equally. Not only if you have political influence or your government have political influence, then Facebook or Meta leans towards you. And, and this is happening not only in Israel-Palestine, this is happening also in India, Kashmir. It's very similar patterns. It's also happened very clearly in Myanmar with the Rohingya. I mean, the UN had a report about it and they criticized Facebook harshly about their policies and how they, they allowed the, the hate speech and they had one side that is basically not moderated and the whole issue that it created. So, so, so the point is that we want these platforms to be equal, to be objective, to have one policy for everybody and really to allow one safe space for all their users. I think recently you also realized that when it came to the Ukraine, there was a lot of support 
for people who were resisting against the Russians, well, when Palestinians write something about resisting their occupation, then it's considered to be terrorism. Exactly. This is a great example. I mean, uh, what happened in these processes that they are allowing clear insight against the uh, Russians or Russian government or Russian president. While if you do this as a Palestinian, immediately it would be taken down and your account will be closed. So it's problematic because it means basically if, if you are culturally more uh, close or you're more Western geographically or just because politically you are somebody in the company thinks that they are there, you are allowed to do more. And that there is not really like global equal policies towards everybody who's using the platform. And this is our main problem. And you said that you also do publications. Can you mention some of the publications you did recently? Yes. So we do research and publications of different issues related to the Palestinian digital rights, including, for example, a recent one that we did is around privacy laws inside the Palestinian territories from the Palestinian Authority. So how, for example, Palestinian telecommunication companies are dealing or, uh, with, uh, with the data of the people because obviously they are gathering lots of data. They know a lot about the, the Palestinian citizens. So in many cases, there are complaints about them selling this data to third party, to other commercial companies. And suddenly, as a Jawal subscriber, you get an advertisement from a company that you never subscribed to it or similar things. So we are having a campaign and we are pushing the Palestinian Authority to, to have a legislation a privacy law, basically a law that would protect the, the people's privacy and regulate the issue in a, in a way that is very clear and gives fines to people who also like violate the, the privacy of the people and make sure that there are standards and mechanisms of data protection with companies that we know of, the, the famous GDPR in Europe, and how much this is really important uh, example that it's actually influenced all the globe, not only Europe. Because companies were, you know, regulating their work and adapting and became a standard also outside of Europe. These things are very important, especially in the days that we are living. And that's why we did the research around this and we are having a campaign. So this is one example of Hamli work. We did also lots of researches around hate speech between Palestinians. And we do also research, an animal one around hate speech in Hebrew against Arabs and Palestinians in the Israeli social media. We did around fake news within Palestinians. So different topics, mainly about things that are important and relevant at that time. That makes me wonder about young people. I mean, I have young children. I didn't give them a phone yet. But once they have a phone in their hands and they start to use social media, they become very vulnerable. Do you do anything related to that, like teaching people, young people, how to use the internet? Yes, I mean, it's uh, obviously a very important thing. We do work a lot around digital security for our children. We work with children, but we work also with the teachers and with parents. Uh, we had a big project around this uh, with UNICEF. But the main idea is, uh, is that children and the professionals who work with them need to know much better how to protect themselves online. And uh, this is something that's becoming more and more acoustic every day, I mean. So we have been engaged with uh, workshops directly with children. We have been engaged with producing raising awareness materials and uh, campaigns and uh, involving also influencers, especially ones who 
وتشويسز اون اون تشيلدرن لايك ايجز اوف ميدل سكول الالمنتري اند ايفن سم اوف ذا بروجيكتس وير اراوند هاي سكول So I think this is very important. This is the media literacy is, is something that is very developing these days, like and becoming part of the curriculum in some countries, because it's felt that this is one of the very important skills. As you said, some parents who are more aware, they make these kind of filters for the children, like restrictions on what YouTube, for example, show or does not show. The internet service providers sometimes give software. And, and other measures how to protect better. Obviously, there's not 100% protection, but I think there should be a state of mind within the parents, and there is, should be also education from the kid, because sometimes what he cannot see at home, in the school, everybody has phones, and then as a parent, you don't really have control. And I know, for example, cases of you know, sending to each other, like porn, short movies, or very violent videos, and other inappropriate content that is becoming very available for really, really very young ages. We're talking about elementary school, and this is very problematic. So I think that raising the awareness of the children from my younger ages on how to consume and how to deal with media, and also about fake news, because In many cases, like with COVID-19 and other cases, like young people get all their information. They don't watch TV and news anymore. They take it from social media. So you want them to know how, how to, to see that this is a fake picture, how I view the picture, how I fact check things. And media literacy is specifically becoming much more important in many countries. And uh, there are a few organizations in Palestine who are doing this, but I think it must be like a mainstream inside the schools. I found on your website also two buttons that I wanted to ask you about related to PayPal and Google Maps. What's that all about? So we spoke about like holding the companies accountable towards Palestinian rights, but it's not only about content moderation. There are also other problems, unfortunately. So from one hand with Google, Google Maps, specifically in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, They are taking one side of the story. They are leading towards the Israeli side. So if you search, for example, Jerusalem in, in the search engine, you would see Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Nothing about being controversial, occupied, UN resolution, anything that heads towards that direction is not there. But also the problem with the West Bank is mainly about what kind of names you would put, how you would deal with the legal settlements. As we all know, population transference. But still, for Google Maps, they are very legitimate and part of the scene, and they don't write anything about checkpoints. If you, as a Palestinian, navigate, you know, use the navigation, it would deal with you as if you were Israeli, because it would suggest roads that you cannot use as a Palestinian. And if you use them, you can reach some settlement or a checkpoint, and you could be... I mean, I, we had the cases that documented testimonies of really like life-threatening situations where people used the navigation, reached the entrance of a settlement, and this could be end in a very bad way. So this is what we are asking Google. With uh, PayPal, there is a problem with the knowledge of the digital economy and, and digital payments. And we know this is becoming really, really like acoustic and very important issue in the world we are living in. We cannot really manage your life these days without getting payments and big payments. And uh, specifically important for young Palestinians who are university graduates who know English, who maybe know coding or design and can work as freelancers from away with Arab countries, with other countries. 
especially uh, there is lots of restrictions of movement in the West Bank, but specifically in Gaza. Working through the internet can open window and hope for the Palestinians and preventing this without any reason this is very problematic. So basically, if you're a Palestinian sitting in Ramallah, you cannot use PayPal, but if you are an Israeli citizen, three kilometers east of Ramallah, you can use PayPal. So it's a very discriminatory approach. Uh, the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian Authority have been working to uh, update the level of the standards of the Palestinian banking system. And the Palestinian banking system has been working with the American Treasury. And they do have the international standards. And that's why the visa is working and the Apple Pay is working. But people, they're not apparently because of the political opinions of the leadership of the company. And that's why we're having a campaign together with other partners in the U.S. and in Palestine, pressuring the company to change their policy and this discrimination must uh, be having an end. And I saw that soon, I think in May, you're having a conference coming up. Can you tell about that? Like, do you gather people from different parts of the country or different parts of the world? And what do you speak about? So Hamdi runs its uh, annual conference, BIDAS, the Palestine Digital Activism Forum. This year, it will be from the 17th to the 19th of May, where basically we do it online in order to allow all Palestinians to join and have the discussions and also all allies and friends also to be there. We basically come together and discuss all the topics that normally Hamdi works around, the digital rights and activism and We also host representatives from the companies who normally come to discuss and debate. So we're having representatives coming from Meta, people who work in Facebook and in WhatsApp and Instagram. We also have representation from Twitter company. We have representation coming from Clubhouse. So different companies representatives are coming and running workshops and panels around also policies and the content moderation and uh, it would be also opportunity for Palestinian people and the audience to ask questions and to hold them accountable around their policies. And that's why it's important for us. But also we have other inspirational speakers, the Congressman Rashid Atleib will be also talking to the crowd and the Palestinian Telecommunication Minister will be also speaking at the beginning. Also people from the academy, from civic society, from companies. So it's a variety of Palestinians and internationals coming together and all the sessions are translated to the two languages, the simultaneous translation. And if you are interested, just see our Facebook page, Hamle, and uh, all the details there and you can register. Yeah, we will put a link in the show notes uh, because the way you write Hamle with the 7-A-M-L-E edge, I think not everybody would be able to find it. But if you go to the show notes, there will be a link. I wish you good luck with organizing the conference. I know that is a lot of work. I want to thank you so much for giving us a bit of insight in the work you're doing. And anybody who wants to know more, they can go to the website and check out what you're doing. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for hosting me. I'm talking to Mona Steyer, who is the advocacy advisor at Hamle. Welcome and thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Can you maybe introduce yourself before I ask you a few more questions about the work of Hamle? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Munashtaya, working as advocacy advisor for Hamla. And in general, I'm a digital rights defender focusing on the MENA region. And I'm now getting my MA from the University of Westminster, London. So I'm speaking to you from London. Yeah. So we've heard from Nadim about the upcoming Digital Activism Forum. Can you speak a little bit about your involvement and maybe what kind of sessions you are really looking forward to? Yeah, sure. So this is the sixth edition of the Palestine Digital Activism Forum. This is an annual event that we at Hamle are organizing. It's like a platform that gathers speakers, trainers, activists, journalists, human rights defenders, and civil society organizations alongside with governments and social media and tech representatives to talk about digital rights. And basically, we aim to put the Palestinian digital rights in the regional and international context so people can understand what does the digital rights violations for Palestinian means. And for this year, we are focusing on a theme digital solidarity for justice, because we have observed in the last couple of years how digital solidarity with the pandemic and after that in 2021, it was a tough year for Palestinians, but we know that digital solidarity from our allies and friends all around the world was really supporting us, was encouraging us. It was really helpful for us to amplify our voices and to talk about our cause and the violations that we are exposed to on the ground. Therefore, we are going to discuss this kind of topic from different angles. Basically, we are going to cover topics that are related to content moderation policies with the social media companies, digital solidarity and digital activism, how we can change or push social media companies to change their content moderation policies if we have intersectional struggle. Because of that, we are hosting people from Colombia, we are hosting people from Kashmir, we are hosting people from the US, from Europe, from other parts of the world. So we can have this kind of intersectional approach while we are talking about Palestine, because Palestinians are not the only people who are suffering from this kind of digital rights violations, but we are with other allies who are also suffering the same thing. We can achieve something if we work together. And because of that, we are going to talk about these things. We are also covering other kinds of topics like surveillance from both sides, the mass surveillance and spywares, and how is that being used from governments and regimes to silence opponents and digital rights and human rights defenders to restrict their works and to prevent them from criticizing their governments. Therefore, we would have like a wide range of panels and sessions to talk about that. Besides that, we have some sessions or some workshops where we are going or we aim to build the capacity of human rights defenders, civil society organizations, journalists, and activists about specific topics. For example, how they can utilize different social media platforms for social good, for mobilizing and organizing for their campaigns. Therefore, we are hosting Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Twitter, Clubhouse, House and Wikipedia so we can understand their policies in the sessions, in the policy sessions. But on the other hand, we can also build the activist capacities in this regard so people can understand exactly how they can utilize these platforms for their, for their issues. With those sessions and workshops, we are hosting a couple of inspirational speakers to talk about their experience in the digital spaces. Therefore, we are hosting the Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib to talk about 
digital rights violations and the kind of silencing that we as Palestinians are exposed to and to highlight her experience as a congresswoman. We are also having the special repertoire for human rights defenders, Mrs. Mary Lawler, with an academic who is Mark Owen Jones, who is going to talk about digital authoritarianism that basically focus on his new book that was launched just yesterday. So we have like a wide range of speakers, inspirational speakers, who will share their experience in the digital spaces and talk about digital rights for social good, but also digital rights violations that they are experiencing during these difficult times for Palestinians and the human rights defenders. And what do you hope that will be the outcome of this conference? So basically, we aim to open the platform for people to network with each other, think together loudly what is the best thing to be done to pressure governments and tech companies to just to comply with the international human rights law and for the companies to comply with the human rights and business principles. Because we know, and we are using social media every single time, and we know that their policies, how they are moderating their content is not really fair enough for minorities, for occupied people. And they have also this kind of double standards when it comes to moderating their content. Two months ago, we saw how social media companies took strict measures to protect Ukrainians who were occupied by Russians. While for Palestinians, it's been now decades, we are living under Israeli oppression and they take requests from the Israeli cyber unit to take down Palestinian content which contribute to silencing us in the digital spaces and oppressing us on the digital spaces, which might contribute to silence our narrative and affect how other people around the world are perceiving the Palestinian cause. Therefore, we are there to talk about that, to talk about oppression. When we speak about things, we feel that we are closer together and we can coordinate our actions, we can coordinate our thoughts, our upcoming events and our upcoming campaigns and putting a higher pressure on companies and governments to make sure that they are working based on the international law, which, which should protect the minorities and the occupied people. Thank you. You mentioned something before about spyware, and we haven't talked about this yet with Nadim, but Israeli technology firms produce a lot of surveillance and spyware, such as the NSO group. They produce the Pegasus malware that spies on devices and something called Blue Wolf. I don't know much about it, but I've heard they also call it the Facebook for Palestinians. Can you speak a little bit more about this? Yeah, definitely. So Israel, they have a pioneering role in producing and manufacturing surveillance technologies, and they are profiting from their occupation to Palestinians or the Palestinian territory because they are testing these technologies in Palestinians before selling that worldwide. I mean, Israelis are producing Pegasus that is owned by NSO and they are selling that worldwide. Over the past two years, we saw groundbreaking investigations that talk about or discuss how the NSO Pegasus is being used to spy on diplomats political opponents, human rights defenders in Palestine and outside, like it's a worldwide issue. 
And we know that they are testing that on us before selling that to the world. And that's a big issue because it's not only violating people's right to privacy. It's like they are, you have this kind of feeling that they are watching you all the time, which kind of create the panopticon effect. So the panopticon, for those who don't know what is a panopticon, it's a, a prison. Basically, it's a rounded prison. And in the center of this prison, there is a tower where there is someone who's watching prisoners all the time uh, with a light so people cannot know that they are being watched and they are not aware that there is someone now watching them or not so they have to change their behavior and quote-unquote being in the best behavior just because they are being watched and they are watching them all the time. And we in Palestine are living and having this kind of panopticon effect, which really affects people's behavior, affects people's trust. The people cannot talk to their beloved ones or to their family or to their friends even, like freely, because just they feel that they are watched. Like over the past year, we saw an investigation that mentioned how Israel can monitor and spy on all the phone calls that is happening in the West Bank. And that is really a huge issue. I can't talk to my mom about a private issue because they are watching me. They are spying on me. On the other hand, the Blue Wolf thing, it started in Hebron because they were taking pictures of people's IDs and they have this kind of database where they are archiving all our data so they can whenever they are stopping you on the checkpoint they can check that and their application gonna send them like a sign to tell them how quote-unquote again dangerous this Palestinian is and that's dehumanizing us because we are being like giving this kind of quotes and numbers and they are having this kind of pictures without having people's consent. They are just taking care or thinking about building their database. And it started there in Hebron, but then it was evolved and it spread to other places. And we know that they are using that to violate people's privacy, right to privacy. There is another kind of thing, it's called white wolf. It is used basically by settlers who are living in the illegal settlements in the Palestinian territory. They are using that to check people's identity, basically Palestinians' identities, who are going to enter the settlements and basically they are going there for work. So they are using that to check Palestinians' identities also to see how dangerous, quote-unquote, they are. So it's kind of keeping people watched, monitored, surveilled all the time, which really is exhausting. In a report that we conducted last year in Jerusalem, women in Jerusalem, because they are using the CCTV cameras there, women in Jerusalem said that they are wearing their hijab or putting like a scarf on their head even inside their homes because they feel that these cameras are sometimes like entering their homes from specific angles so they don't feel safe to take off their hijabs and that's dangerous they are changing like on the short term they are changing like some habits here and there, but on the long term, they are changing our behavior. They are changing our trust with each other and with the community and also with the government. So 
this is kind of disaster. The effect of panopticon, like Foucault, the French philosopher Foucault was talking about that because it's kind of keep you surveilled, keep you watched all the time and it's changing your behavior and like this is this is dangerous. On the other hand, Edward Said was talking about how colonizers or occupiers are profiting from the occupied people because whenever they know more information about you, knowledge is power, basically. This is the key. So the more they know about you, the most profitable this occupied people will be. And this would make our control, the population control, easier for them and minimize their work in controlling us. So this is really dangerous. Like historically, there was this kind of surveillance from the occupier to the occupied because they know that knowledge is power. But in the Palestinian case, it's it's way dangerous because it's really going in every detail in our life and it's it's affecting us badly. So this is how dangerous, briefly, this is briefly how dangerous the surveillance that we are living under when you are living under a surveillance state is. Is there anything that Hamlet can do about this other than reporting and making awareness? So basically making awareness, but also building not only Hamlet, but other also human rights organizations, building coalitions to pressure these companies to stop violating people's right to privacy because whenever they are violating people's right to privacy people will feeling surveilled as also as affecting your right to freedom of expression because you have this kind of chilling effect you know that someone was arrested because he said something and because of that you will prevent yourself from criticizing someone from mobilizing for your cause from talking about something because you are afraid of being arrested of being interrogated, or sometimes maybe they can take other actions. So basically, we should build allies and expand our networks to make sure that governments are not buying this kind of technologies that were basically tested on Palestinians and then they are profiting from that. So it's kind of raising awareness and advocacy efforts that we usually work on and others should work on in collaboration with Palestinians, but also with other people in the global south, because we know that Global South regimes are most probably oppressive regimes, so they are using this kind of technologies. They have money to buy surveillance technologies, but they don't have money to solve other issues, some regimes. So, yeah, we know also in our region that specific countries are really having good relations with the Israeli to get benefit of these uh, surveillance technologies like the UAE government, the Saudi Arabia government, the Moroccan government. So all of those governments have a track record using NSO Pegasus to spy on their political opponents and human rights defenders in order to restrict the freedom of expression and prevent them from criticizing their governments. Thank you, Mona. That was a very clear explanation. I have one last question. This is also something I didn't speak with Nadim about yet, but Hamle also wrote a report on hate speech on social media, and you did a campaign around this topic. Can you tell us more about that? 
Yeah, sure. So basically, we at Hamlet usually have the index of hate speech and incitement, which basically focus on the hate speech and the public conversations from the Israelis against Palestinians. And we thought because social media platforms widen the horizon for people to also incite and spread hate speech against each other to check that internally within the Palestinian society to see how is basically the hate speech is being published on the social media platforms. And our report basically said that nine out of 10 Palestinians were subjected to hate speech on social media platforms on political or gender-based ground. And nine out of 10 Palestinians consider hate speech a real danger, as well as nine out of 10 Palestinians believe that hate speech affects the behavior of the individuals. So basically, in this research, we were looking forward to see how hate speech is being spread on social media, on the Palestinian social media, to understand how is that working. And basically, we found that there are two main components, the political one and the gender-based one. The political one is related to the occupation because we have this kind of the political split and the, the complexity when it comes to the Palestinians who are living under occupation for decades now. And therefore, when we say that 90% of Palestinians are exposed to hate speech, this is really high percentage based on your gender identity or because it's basically gender-based violence or political thing, you are expected to have hate speech against you. So this was fascinating. We were expecting a high percentage, but we didn't expect this kind of percentage because it's really, it's really high. And there is one interesting point actually that we observed while we were working on that is basically people were almost normalizing hate speech, which came based on gender-based violence because they were focusing more about the political one so we we knew that some kind specific kind of comments are classified as hate speech against women on the social media platforms for example when they when people are commenting on someone how she wears or how she behaves or how she looks like or whatsoever so for people like um, they they were not really recognized basically that this is also hate speech and that was interesting because i mean People should be aware this is basically the main issue behind working on this on this report because we want to raise people awareness what is hate speech, why they should not spread hate speech, and if they are exposed to hate speech on social media platforms, how should they react? Where should they report? Because we at Hamlem have launched the first Palestinian digital rights observatory, which calls Hur, and Hur means free. Basically, we usually encourage people who are exposed to hate speech or who observe hate speech on the social media platforms to report to her. And we can review that and follow up on that because it's really dangerous and sometimes it leads to a real world harm such as in the case of inciting against Arabs and Palestinians from the Israelis. For example, in the May uprising last year, they were inciting and spreading hate speech against Arabs and Palestinians, and it led to real-world harm. So because of that, we encourage people through our Raising Awareness campaign that we launched last month to report to her and to tell us whenever they are exposed to or someone they know is exposed to hate speech on the social media platform. So how do you reach out to especially women to teach them about hate speech on social media? 
So basically, our raising awareness campaign was built on having a short videos with social media influencers where they try to pick some papers like note papers and to read specific comments that they got on on their social media, which is criticizing them. And many of those influencers were women. So some of them received hate speech based on their religion. Some of them based on on what they are wearing. Some of them based on their makeup. Some of them based on how they are speaking. Like basically, where are they coming from? And some of them, where they are living. Because, you know, as a result of the political situation in Palestine, there is uh, camps, there is villages, there is cities. And people who are coming, for example, this is one of the results. People who are coming from camps sometimes are exposed to hate speech that says that you are Kamji. Kamji, it's like someone who's coming from a camp. And it is really like people sometimes they don't consider that as a hate speech. They consider that it's right. It's their right to classify people based on where they are coming from. And we know that this is hate speech. So basically, they were taking notepapers and reading this kind of hate speech that they are exposed to through a comments and the inboxes on their social media platforms. And they were, okay, this is hate speech. And nine out of 10 Palestinians are exposed to hate speech. If you don't know, this is hate speech. So we were targeting Palestinians generally, but through having women influencers to talk about their own experience and the kind of comments that they are exposed to, we highlighted the gender-based violence for women and the hate speech issue. Thank you very much, Mona, for explaining more about all the campaign work that Hamle is doing. It's very important, very relevant. Thank you very much for your time and I wish you good luck with the upcoming forum. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Pax Palestine podcast. If you want to know more about the work of Pax, you can visit their website paxforpeace.nl or click the link in the show notes of this podcast. My name is Crystal and you can find my weekly podcast Stories from Palestine on your favorite podcast player or on the website storiesfrompalestine.info. for listening to stories from palestine if you enjoy the podcast then here are several things you can do to support the show tell your friends about the podcast share some of the social media posts on instagram or facebook start following the youtube channel you can also hear the podcast audio there and soon i will start uploading videos sign up for the email list so that you get a reminder with a clickable link to the new podcast episode and in the future you will be updated about programs and trips that I will start to organize. And of course you can donate to help me pay for hosting the podcast and the website and all the related recording costs. It's the only source of income I have at the moment so you can imagine how much I appreciate every cup of coffee or falafel sandwich that you buy me on the Kofi platform. 
All the links that you need can be found in the show notes and on the website storiesfrompalestine.info. That's it. I hope you will tune in again next week. 